Welcome to the Jungian Anthology Podcast, Analytical Psychology Seminars from the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. Episode 2, Jungian Views on Aging with Lionel Corbett, M.D. This recording is the final segment of a larger lecture given by Lionel Corbett and includes a lengthy question-and-answer period. Themes include the importance of the archetypes, primitive versus developed ego defenses, pre-egoic states, the storage of trauma in the body, and a discussion of the inner victim-perpetrator dyad, which predates Kalshed's work on the self-care system. Lionel Corbett, MD, trained in medicine and psychiatry in England, and as a Jungian analyst at the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. Dr. Corbett is a core faculty member at Pacifica Graduate Institute, teaching depth psychology. He is the author of The Religious Function of the Psyche and Psyche and the Sacred, Spirituality Beyond Religion. He is co-editor with Dennis Patrick Slattery of Depth Psychology, Meditations in the Field, and Psychology at the Threshold, Selected Papers. Now, uh, lest I get struck by lightning, I'm going to begin this with, uh, with a dream. Uh, and the, uh, I should mention that um, the dreamer is in the audience, and uh, after the break will be uh, available for discussion. What I want to do is, uh, first of all, uh, show a slide um, which illustrates a part of the dream, describe the dream, then talk about aging from a general point of view, particularly a Jungian point of view, and then in the second part of this to um, uh, amplify the dream on the basis of our understanding of aging. Okay, so can I have the slide to start with, please? Okay, now, uh, the dream uh, is, uh, occurs when uh, the dreamer is in her early 60s, a voice informs me that it is now going to teach me about the process of aging. An illustration appears before my eyes. It represents the rejuvenated Godhead. Underneath it, live, is the head of a very old man. A connecting line is drawn from the old man's head to the divinity. The illustration is black on white, a sketch. So the illustration is a sketch, but the head is alive. There is an outer elongated square and an inner circle. At the bottom of the inner circle is a crescent. Out of the crescent arises two heads on long necks that look almost identical. I know they share the same body, which is not shown. The voice explains that this is an abstract of the rejuvenated Godhead. The right head represents the male aspect and the left the female aspect. The two heads are in absolute harmony with each other. There is something esoteric about them. They look like spirits, somewhat ethereal. I perceive their facial expression as aristocratic, blithe, somewhat curious, unemotional. They do not look authoritative, but the voice is. The top of their heads is shaped like an indented crown with three prongs that I can see on each head. The old man looks quite ordinary and sort of earthy. The voice explains that in our society we still do not understand the process of aging. And this is the very important part. The purpose of our maturation is to enable the Godhead to rejuvenate. If we could only understand that, when we are born, God is old. When we grow old, God becomes young. And when we die, God experiences rebirth. And this goes on and on, but not in the sense that the Godhead is feeding on us, but the whole thing is rather a natural process which is not yet too well understood. It is absolutely essential that, particularly in old age, we do not lose or have lost our connectedness with the Godhead, for otherwise we not only deprive God of our share in his rejuvenation, but may actually disturb the cosmic ecology which in turn affects us. 
Ideally, so the voice says, we gain wisdom as we grow older, but only few people do. I understand wisdom to be a conglomeration of life experiences, a priori and acquired knowledge, and the awareness and acceptance of one's inner child. To accumulate knowledge per se is not all that important. Important is that we are connected with the Godhead or the Divine and let it live within us even though it is also outside of us. Belief in a cosmic supreme being or power constellates the inner child. I hope this is making John Giannini happy. And thus furthers the divine rejuvenation process. If we ignore the divine element, it sinks into itself and ceases to be conscious of itself. Extremely important idea. As we grow older, we often lose the child, and as we lose the child, we are apt to simultaneously sever our ties to the, to the divine. There was also some indication that the birth and the death process are actually the same, except that as little children we seem to be contained in the divine element, whilst in old age we are apparently expected to be a container for the divine element. Okay. Right, that's, uh, we'll have the slide off now, please. Can we have the lights on? This is a, a Xerox picture of that in case people want to refresh their memory. Now what I want to do now is talk about aging and try and explain eventually what that dream means, about uh, try to amplify it. So let me begin by, uh, it sounds rather mysterious at first, uh, I want to talk about old age as, as a developmental process. Now the first point that I want to make is that it's clear that uh, uh, as we get older, there are a series of different demands that uh, society makes on us, our bodies alter, and constant adaptation I is required. Uh, interpersonal relationships change their quality, our career interests and our avocational interests all change. And the problem is how do we move, in, move, move out of midlife into old age? How do, we, how do we accomplish that transition? Now there are very popular stage theories about life. Uh, and these stage theories say that at certain times of life you have to do certain things. You have to go to college when you're in your early 20s, you have to get married in your 20s, and so on. And the, the difficulty with this is that that attitude of the stage theory tends to turn description into prescription, and people start to feeling, feeling that if they're not uh, doing the right thing at the right time, that somehow there's something wrong with them. This, of course, is a mistake, and it's very clear that sometimes young people are faced with tasks in their life that really belong to late life, and uh, nowadays the elderly can go to school or they can start new families and so this has increasingly become what's called an age irrelevant society this rigid stage theory is slowly going out but even bearing that in mind it's clear that as you go through different stages of the life cycle there are new circumstances in each stage and development always requires two things it always requires that you relinquish something that you let go of something and that you learn something new if you think of it uh, the baby has to let go of the bottle and the diaper has to relinquish that and learn all the new tasks and that is true at every stage and the transition into old age is, is no different you have to relinquish certain things and you have to learn certain things now we know a great deal about the first part of life but nobody's until recently has paid much attention to the last part of life because there weren't enough people to make it really worthwhile and um, what's happened is that our attitudes in society about aging have really lagged very far behind uh, what's actually the, the current reality about old people. And there's a great deal of prejudice that's called ageism, which is analogous to sexism or racism about the elderly. And this is particularly true, unfortunately, among doctors because they see a very biased section of old people. They just see the sick ones. And many doctors particularly don't, do not realize that, that uh, in the last 20 years there's been a considerable increase in vigor, and longevity in, in people over 65. It used to be thought, I'm not sure if this uh, reaches the board, yes it does, it used to be thought that if you, 
if you plotted vigor against age, that it was just a straight line down. And now what we know now is that, in fact, it's, it, the real curve of vigor against age looks like this. And if this is 65 and this is 85, this vigor curve isn't a straight line down. I hope this is visible. It's, it's more rectangular. Between 65 and 85, vigor is well preserved and declines only very slowly. And then it tends to decline rather rapidly over, uh, after the age of 85. Now, th it's that 20-year period, which is as long as childhood and adolescence, that's very, very important and has become into problem. The question is, what do you do during that 20-year period now? Since statistically, if you get to 65, you'll probably get to 85. Now, at one time, another misconception was that there wasn't anything you could do. That all you could do was choose your parents as carefully as possible, because the, the gene package determined everything, and that was it. Now we know that that isn't true, and if you're reasonably careful about things like exercise and, and how you eat, nutritional factors and weight control and, and general health and social interaction, uh, I won't go into all the details of that, but if you pay reasonable attention to those things, especially uh, if you continue uh, some kind of creative work and intellectual work, and particularly above all if you have a persistent sense of meaning, then certain modifications of the aging process can be postponed. Now, uh, those things won't postpone whether or not you get cataracts or whether your kidneys start to age and so on. But the fact is that there are very large numbers of old people nowadays who are maintaining very good health and physical health, emotional health and physical health and creativity. Um, and the, the stereotype of the demented, senile, deaf old person is no longer true. That only applies probably to 5% of the elderly population. Three quarters of them are living independently. Um, and many of them are extremely well. Now, the other mis uh, misconception uh, is that all old people are, people are alike. That, in fact, is enormous plasticity among old people. That, in fact, the degree of variability as you get older increases. It doesn't decrease. If you take a group of old people, they are much less like uh, an age-matched group of younger people. Who, you know, all teenagers like the same music and the same clothes. All old people are not like that. Differentiation continues to increase, so heterogeneity increases. So it's not a period of remorseless decline. Certain functions decline, many functions do not decline. And especially in the psychological realm and the spiritual realm, continuous growth occurs. Um, and this growth and development makes very, very exacting demands on the personality. It's not easy to do it properly. So uh, what people used to do with that first curve that I drew is they used to, they used to generalize from this, sh from this what, what is now known as the terminal period of decline into the into the whole of the aging period. That was the, mis the conceptual mistake they made. Now, because we don't know very much about the developmental psychology of late life, uh, what clinicians do in particular is that they, they take criteria that are good for midlife and they apply them to old people so, um, in terms of normality. Now, that would be equivalent to judging a middle-aged person as if he or she was an adolescent. The, the developmental necessities are not the same. And it might be fine for a 50-year-old to be going to work every day and struggling still and so on, but for an 85-year-old to be going to work for eight hours a day may mean something quite different. It might in fact mean that he or she is quite neurotic. So they tend to use norms that are not relevant to the age, uh, and they don't know how to, how to guide people into age-appropriate uh, behavior. Now, um, because the culture overvalues youth and undervalues age, uh, the unconscious assumption is that you've got what you've got to do to be good in old age is constantly behave like a young person. Okay, so you have lots of television ads telling you that about old skin and young skin, but of course uh, age spots are not on the skin; they're in the psyche. Okay, um, 
if you if you can't if you think that you constantly have to behave like young people, what happens is you get a developmental arrest, and you just get stuck constantly trying to behave like a young person, and you avoid what I'm going to talk about, which are the developmental tasks of of late life. Uh, now, I, the, the dream is is partly about initiation into old age, about how you get across the threshold. Okay, so I'll, I'll talk about how you do that later on when I amplify the dream. But I want to go through rather quickly the developmental tasks of old age, having gotten into it. Uh, what do you have to do? Now, the first point is that what happens to you in, uh, in old age is partly a function of what happened to you uh, in youth and middle age, of course. If you've always been uh, character disordered and peculiar, uh, you're likely to be character disordered and peculiar in late life. And the, the, the people say that if you want to be a nice little old lady, you have to start when you're 16. It's, it, but you can... But you can, um, the, the point is that it's a, it's a continuous process, but you can make up for missed opportunities at any time. And also it's obvious that um, you need reasonable physical health and reasonable emotional health and reasonable uh, economic circumstances and good education helps very well, and a well uh, very much, and a well-preserved social network helps. And the more you have of those, the more favorable are the chances to get into a successful old age. And of course, people will have them to different degrees. So I, w I want to go through the developmental uh, tasks of late life, but I want you to uh, understand that they, are, they represent ideal goals. It's like the idea of individuation. Nobody can quite do it, but it's something that one can think about as an ideal goal. Um, they are rare, these, uh, it's, it's impossible virtually to attain all of these, and I don't want to sound Pollyannish about it. Um, many of us can attain many of them. Now, the first point is the development of our unused potential. Uh, in early in life, because of the demands of work and, and marriage and school and so on, uh, only a part of our personality is able to come into the world. But uh, at some point, the rest of the personality presses for recognition. And any unused talent that we haven't used so far can be started uh, to be developed. Uh, unused, the development of unused potential is one of the main developmental tasks. Now, that's why having as broad as possible a cultural and educational base, base in young life is very important. The best thing you can do to help somebody into old age is to give them a reasonable childhood and as, as broad an education as possible. Because then in later on in life, they can start to pick up threads that they may have started but had to drop earlier in life. Now, this is also not only important in terms of things like playing the piano, but also things like uh, uh, unused psychological functions. Of course, this is referred to in Jung as the development of the inferior function. Uh, I'm sure most people here are familiar with, with typology, so I won't go into details, but, but people who, who've been uh, good at uh, being sensitive to people's feelings, good at relationships, good with children, uh, might find it, in, feeling types, might find it important to, to start uh, being involved in a discipline that requires abstract thought and rigorous thought. Uh, people who've, who've always been very good at abstract thought and logical thought might start to uh, uh, work on more on interpersonal relationships and their neglected feeling side. Uh, Down-to-earth, here-and-now practical people, sensation types, might, might take an interest in things like mythology and religion that are more dependent on intuition. And intuitives who've always been interested in, in ideas and possibility and living in the clouds might, might benefit from taking up something like gardening or photography or something which is much more hands-on and down-to-earth. So that's a kind of rough sketch, but that's actually terribly important because it's in, and that's one of the major things that I think one should do in, in late life, the development of the inferior function. It would take too long to go into detail about that. Now, the other uh, developmental task is the development of the contrasexual, which is what this dream is partly about. That is, in, me in men, the, uh, the anima, and in women, the animus. 
Uh, now, in our culture, fortunately, the, the, uh, um, the um, difficulties attendant on doing that are starting to break down, uh, and it's getting a little bit easier. Um, I'll talk more about that later. Now, the second important task is, the, is the simply the development of meaning, to look back on one's life and say, what does it mean? Um, there are lots of, when, you, when you think about your life, there are lots of thematic contents that seem to recur uh, because we have complexes, we have neuroses, and because we have neuroses, we keep doing the same thing again, again and again. So we see patterns in our life. Uh, and when we look back and we think about all our suffering and our relationships and sacrifices and struggles, uh, we can get, a, first of all, a sense of identity by looking at them all, but then by looking at the kind of patterns that we've weaved in the sense of life as a tapestry, we can start to understand a little bit more about what the meaning of our life. And then we can start to, uh, to understand what is the relationship between what's happened to me in the world and what I've done and what I'm like on the inside, and what's the inner-outer connection. How has what's happened to me on the outside be the same as what's happened to me on the inside? This is uh, known by, uh, called by Gerhard Adler the synthesis of nature and consciousness. Consciousness finally discovers what this particular nature was all about. Of course, uh, psychologically sophisticated people in the Jungian community will start to see mythic themes in their own lives be having been repeated. And then one is able to locate one's life against the wider cultural background. But this process, which is called reminiscence therapy, uh, is not an easy process. It's very difficult. Uh, initially, the, when you try and do this with people, the memories are very disjointed or they're very meaningless. And, and the discovery of, of a sense of process and the, and the discovery of connections between events might be very, very difficult. Often, they, all the events seem isolated and meaningless. And especially if there's a great deal of bitterness in the person's life, a great deal of guilt and grief can get stirred up. Um, and when they start to look back and they see that the, the discrepancy between promise and achievement was enormous, they may feel actually worse. So this is not a, a process to be undergone lightly. lightly. It can, in fact, make people worse. And it can lead to despair. But when it's successful, then it leads to uh, accepting of life without excessive regret, uh, the capacity to let go of goals that cannot be achieved, and the refocusing of energy on what is attainable and on further development, as in this dream. The next important thing we have to do is maintain self-esteem. Now, as a general rule, self-esteem tends, in fact, to be maintained, in fact, to improve as we go through life. Because our image of ourself and our sense of self-worth is constantly being increased as we, we uh, gain in achievement, uh, in ability and in talent, in relationships and money and, a, uh, and so on, uh, things tend to get better. But in late life, of course, many of these things are not so available to us, and that's when self-esteem might fall. Now, it, it falls when uh, it's very heavily dependent on factors such as appearance, physical beauty, or occupation or social status, because those things are harder to maintain in late life than qualities such as friendships, humor, wisdom, the fund of knowledge, experience, and so on. If your self-esteem is wrapped up in those things, then it will, it's likely to increase. But if you're an aging narcissist who can't stand age spots, then you're in much more trouble. And of course, it may be very difficult to maintain, to find new sources of self-esteem if you have considerable health and uh, economic problems, or if you feel very powerless. Um, now, the next important task is the development of new roles and new responsibilities. And um, this breaks down, firstly, into family roles. Now, you have to change the relationship that you have with your adult children in late life. Uh, the extreme um, example of this is what's called in, in the uh, uh, geriatric literature role reversal, where the children have to take care of the, have the, children have to take care of the parents. 
but it's often, uh, usually in fact, not, not quite such a, um, an extreme change. But the nature of the relationship does shift, and you must allow the child to be an adult, psychologically, and you must not uh, hang on uh, and prevent the child from growing up and being a person in his or her own right, which is often very difficult for some people. Um, the other thing is uh, in terms of dependency on the family or dependency on anybody. D excessive dependency, of course, in early life or midlife might be very neurotic, but in late life, de mature dependency, when it's really necessary, uh, um, is very, very important. And if you can't allow yourself to de be dependent when you need help, that's just as neurotic as a young person who's too dependent. So we like to think of interdependence being necessary. And refusal of that, for instance, might be... Uh, uh, problematic. The role of being a grandparent is very, very important. It's helpful for the grandparents, helpful for the child. It includes teaching, companionship, playing with the children, often in ways that are very much more relaxed than, than parents can afford to do. Uh, telling stories about the family to grandchildren uh, uh, means that you are the historian of the family for the children, and, and this connects all the generations together. It increases the identity of the family, and it increases the sense of continuity of the children. So that's a very important role. Now, with regard to non-family roles, uh, as friends and family die, of course, one's personal world shrinks. And that's when the risk of loneliness is very, very great. So the capacity for maintaining new relationships is extremely important. Uh, even given that, there can be no restitution for the loss of lifelong relationships. Um, there's no way of working through, in the old-fashioned sense, a grief at the loss of a spouse that you've been married to for 40 or 50 years, that the grief process is never fully finished. And in fact, that leads people sometimes to avoid uh, the redevelopment of new intimate relationships in late life because they say things like, I'm, how can you afford to get close to somebody again and risk all the grief happening again? Well, if you overdo that, of course, there's some truth in that. I don't want to make it seem as though it's easy. It's not. But if you overdo that, you end up becoming very isolated and lonely. So some balance has to be achieved in there. Sexuality, of course, also ought to be maintained in, until very late in life. This is another one of the myths about aging that it's not. There's a sexless old age. That's not true either. Sexuality ought to go on indefinitely. The drive to, uh, gets a bit less, but it never goes away completely. Uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of ignorance in the culture about the normal age-related changes in sexual functioning, so uh, people think that the pathology is present when there really isn't any pathology present, and there's a lot of social misunderstanding about that. So that's one of the... Uh, the last sexual taboos, sex in old age. There's still a good deal of prejudice about that. Uh, Maggie Kuhn suggested to me uh, a list of new roles and responsibilities in the social sphere for old people who, whose time is not fully committed but who have plenty of energy, which is often the case. First of all, she suggests that they become educators and transmitters of knowledge. Now, one of the difficulties is, of course, that people think that the knowledge of old people is obsolete. Now, it often depends what kind of profession you're in. If you're in a profession like law or medicine, then your fund of knowledge is very valuable. Um, so, uh, and, and besides that, there are many forms of knowledge besides those found in textbooks that you can transmit to other people. Then they can be social historians and critics. Uh, they can caution against repeating old mistakes that they've lived through. And their experiential perspective on society is very considerable and unique uh, if they will be listened to. But if they don't think they should be listened to, nobody will listen to them. So it's, it's a two-way street. Um, they can be workers for social change, if, uh, if that interests them, because they're very good. They tend to be very good at knowing the system. 
Uh, Maggie Kuhn likes to be a monitor of public bodies. Instead of calling herself a watchdog, she calls herself a watch bitch. Basically, what she likes to do is to make sure that politicians and public officials and so on are doing But that's just her particular thing. But that's one example of putting one's energies into uh, socially useful uh, situations. And then being an ethical counselor is very, very important. Elder people can articulate the conscience and the moral standards of the culture with less risk of being uh, accused of serving their own careers. David Gutman pointed out that during the Watergate era, era uh, the men who dealt with uh, Nixon, Sirica and Irwin and Jaworski were all rather elderly. And nobody could say to them they were just doing this. Uh, because of their own careers. They already had their careers established, but they were, by virtue of their seniority somehow, able to carry the conscience of the nation. Then they can be futurists. They, a long life points beyond itself. And uh, uh, many, many old people are concerned about future generations. We have the image of the old man planting uh, the acorns for new trees, which of course he won't live to see. But you can only do that uh, if you are able to get above your own fears of death and change, which also is relevant to the dream. Now, the other important uh, task is the discovery of new values. Now, Jung said that uh, things don't happen for no reason in nature, and there wouldn't be such a thing as longevity unless it had a meaning for the species. He said the fruits of biological life, uh, the fruits of biological life are children, but the fruit of psychological life, especially in late life, is meaning. And, c and what old people have to do is make meaning and make culture, make new ideas, and not compete with the young. There's, they have a different responsibility, and their, their fecundity is a spiritual fecundity and a, uh, in, in the production of new meaning, not competing with young people. It's very important because our culture in the first part of life requires competitiveness and assertiveness, making family, making uh, social status, productivity, and so on. Um, but there are huge pressures towards conformity, so it's very difficult in late life to say, well, I've done all that now, I'm going to stop doing that, and I'm going to sit down and see what it all means. Uh, because the tendency is not to encourage introspective values and the cultivation of, of the inner life and so on, uh, uh, and, the, and the contemplation. These things are not valued in the culture, and it's hard to go against the tide of the culture. So if we want that to happen, we have to make that happen. That would be uh, one example of making culture. Now, the, another thing is to develop wisdom. Uh, now, the psalmist says, so teach us to number our days that we may get as a heart of wisdom. In other words, it takes a long time to get wise, to get smart. Uh, Jung also wrote that the natural end of life is not senility, it's wisdom. Now, it's very hard to define. He said it means becoming who you are. Just aligning your conscious life with the stream of inner images so that the inner and the outer and your conscious synthesis of the two become one, one person. It just means developing the wholeness of the personality and becoming who you are, really. Um, he also points out that wisdom, the antidote for suffering is wisdom, that bitterness and wisdom tend to exclude each other. So the more wise you are, that's why this is so important, the less you will be bitter and the less you will suffer. For other, other writers have written differently on, on wisdom. Kohut has written about wisdom being the acceptance of your limits, uh, renouncing unmodified narcissism. Erickson, of course, wrote that wisdom is the detached yet active concern with life itself in the face of death. Um, the idea, his idea is that you want to convey to oncoming generations your sense uh, of life's integrity and fullness and, and meaningfulness. In, in spite of the, uh, being in the face of death. It's still worthwhile. You have to convey that idea to oncoming generations. That's his idea of integrity. Instead of despairing and say, oh, it's all not been worthwhile. Um, so, uh, now the best definition, actually, which I, at first I thought was the most naive definition, is the definition of Meister Eckhart. 
but it's the hardest of all to achieve. And his definition is that wisdom consists in doing the next thing you have to do, doing it with your whole heart and finding delight in doing it. I find that probably the most profound definition, but the hardest thing, because you know usually what you have to do next is some crap that you don't want to have to do. So that's very hard to get to. But if you do get to it, then uh, it has a certain meaning that we'll, we'll perhaps come to. The next point is, is uh, the development of spiritual values. Now here I don't mean adherence to some kind of traditional religious creed or belief in dogma or anything like that. I'm not excluding that, but that's not what I'm talking about here. Um, I'm, having to, I'm talking about the, the search for meaning and values and an attempt to understand the depth of experience and to transcend preoccupation with the personal and the local. That's very, very important. Um, now, if the traditional religion that you grew up in or acquired does this for you, then that's fine. But if, if those myths don't have the original energy that they had, then you still have to convey, confront the meaning of life and death and good and evil and suffering and loss. And how do you do that? That, when you, that is the pursuit of, spiritual, uh, of meaning, of the spiritual life. Um, so, whatever your concept of divinity is, uh, some kind of rapprochement, with it, whatever, however it manifests in your life, is very, very important. In Jungian terms, of course, we call this contact with the self. It's a relationship with the self in late life is absolutely imperative. Uh, if, you, if this doesn't happen, old people become bitter and full of self-pity. Uh, and the dream is about how this is done. It's, it's about how one way this is done. Okay, now I want to end uh, this part uh, by talking about a paper that uh, was written uh, last year by a man called Cole who said that there is a, a hidden catch in um, criticizing prejudices about old age. If, if, you, if, you, if you emphasize a healthy old age and you say, oh, well, lots of old people are healthy and that's wonderful, you perpetuate an unconscious dualistic attitude. And what you imply is that healthy old age is good and sick old age is bad. It's very dualistic, he points out. And he says, how do we emphasize, how do we imbue sickness and death and decay and those ill old people with, with uh, moral and spiritual significance to use it? How can we say that old, old people who are demented and ill and decrepit are still valuable and still meaningful? Okay. Uh, and not just say that only the, only the well old people are what we want. We don't want to have a dualistic attitude. So that's what I think this dream is really all about. Now, uh, as you know, in our culture, there's no, uh, there's no transition into old age that's official. And many people become emotionally distressed when they feel that they're getting old. Now, if you accept the challenge, there's a great deal of opportunity for growth, as I've talked about. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, <coughs> but lots of people decompensate at this time emotionally because they can't meet the challenge. Now, the reason for that is this. Hitherto, we've had sequential advancement. Uh, we've had more prestige and more authority as we've gotten older. Now, society wants us into a, an, go into a role with uh, new norms, new values, and a risk of a fall in status. Sometimes this is triggered by retirement. So that a group of older people have grown up called the young old. And these are people who, who and they say that we're vigorous, we're healthy, we're not going to call ourselves old, we're the young old. Um, now, in fact, they exemplify this long steady state period that I talked about, that, that triangularization from 65 to 85. They don't decay. Now, what I think happens to those people is that this transitional crisis of moving into old age just gets postponed. They still have to face it emotionally. And they are, are, are examples of that dualistic attitude. I won't call myself old because old is bad. That's the point about the, the young old. And I want to get to the point where we can say that young is not bad, that old is not bad, that old is good. And that there's no need to call yourself young old because old old isn't bad.
Now, there are no social provisions to help you into this transition. There's a lot of turmoil, a lot of ambiguity, and you don't know how to do it. Now, we know from pre-technological cultures the importance of initiation into new parts of the life cycle. Uh, and the rites of passage that they perform are to help people move across the threshold. Now, they seem very primitive, but they, the rites of passage perform very profound social and psychological functions. They are not a coincidence. A study of pre-technological societies, the reason some of us are very interested in it, is it's like telling you about the human psyche seen in projection, in behavior, uh, without the influence of culture. It's very, very important. The culture, the clan, validates the transition for the individual and says, yes, it's good for you to move into this new role. Um, during the uh, threshold period, which is a period of great anxiety and uncertainty, the rites, the ceremonies, offer the initiate protection. They give him a new set of symbols, and at the same time, they connect him with the tradition of the tribe and the history of the tribe. We've always done it this way. This, this makes you part of the, of the culture. Then you, so you symbolically often die and get reborn in the initiation ceremony. And then when you get reborn, you are reincorporated into the group with a new status and new responsibilities and, and new duties and so on. But you know where you belong and you know where you are and you've gone across the threshold. It's very difficult. Now, we don't have anything like that to take us into old age. We also don't have anything like it to take us into uh, adolescence very often or any other uh, part of the life cycle. But the point about these ceremonies is to protect the emotional health of the, um, of the uh, individual and of the society to make sure that people keep developing. Okay, um, And what you do is you integrate the biological necessity, the social necessity, and the psychological necessity to keep moving through the life cycle. That's what these rites of passage are for in, in primitive cultures. And we don't have them. And that's why people get screwed up uh, at developmental epochs, like adolescence and, and moving into old age and so on. Okay, so in our culture, we, we don't have anything like that to help us get into old age. So... Um, uh, in her early 60s, our dreamer has this dream, and I'm going to suggest that this is an example of what Henderson calls in his book on initiation, auto-initiation, where the self motivates from within. The self knows, perhaps, that there's some difficulty about moving into this threshold period, and if, if nothing happens, she may regressively st stay psychologically into, into midlife because of her anxiety about the future. So this image from the self comes up to initiate her. It's a symbolic impetus if she takes it seriously. And in that way, she can reconcile, if she takes it seriously, her own consciousness with what Campbell calls universal will. Now, um, can we have the slide again, please? Now, like all, now this is, so I think this dream is a miniature initiation ceremony, you see. Um, uh, it represents, I'll amplify it in more detail, uh, the reuniting of, an, of a divine unity and, and the re-establishment of a state of totality. Uh, let me explain why that is in a moment. It, it reflects the state of affairs prior to the creation of, individual, of the individual when there was no differentiation. And this state prior to the creation of the individual is now regained, but this time with the addition of consciousness. She's brought into, into relationship with an image of divine unity, which is one of the things that initiation does. It reveals the sacred to you. Now, while she's related to the sacred, she can transcend the personal, and at the same time, she can emphasize her individuality. Okay. Um, perhaps uh, also the dreamer, with, its with the dream, with its emphasis on uh, death and rebirth, is addressing a lot of uh, death anxiety which old people may have. And uh, it, it tells her that her personal life, when it says, just to remind you, it says, the purpose of old age is the rejuvenation of God. And 
as we get older, God gets younger, and when we die, God is reborn. That's the important image, that when, as we get older, God gets younger, and when we die, God is reborn. So what does that mean? Well, first of all, it puts her existence in, in relation to the eternal. Okay, It puts her, the death idea into a new perspective. And transformation, psychological transformation is often I imagined in dreams as death and rebirth imagery. Um, it, il it illustrates a point of Eliade that initiation always gives death a positive value. Death, his phrase is that death prepares for new birth into a mode of being not subject to time. So this emphasizes to her the transitory nature of chronological time, but images for her an ongoing relationship to sacred time and to eternity. Now it initially reminded me of a statement in the Gospel of Thomas, for every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now this uh, was not intended as a sexist remark, it was intended to point out the need to develop androgynous consciousness, this bisexual consciousness. You see, the other thing the dream said, if you remember, is that one head is male and one is female. Um, now the Gospel of Thomas also reports uh, Jesus saying that the kingdom of God is not a physical place, and doesn't occur at a future time, but is found inside the individual. So the kingdom is actually an image of transformed consciousness. The way this happens is that the disciples say to him, shall we as children enter the kingdom? Um, you remember Jesus is speaking symbolically, as he, he did when uh, poor Nicodemus came to him and says, what's all this stuff about being reborn? How can you get reborn again? And Jesus says, look, dummy, it doesn't mean literally, it means symbolically. Okay. And here it's the same thing. Jesus says to them, when you make the two one, and when you make the inside like the outside, and the outside like the inside, and the above like the below, all these images of uniting, and when you make the male and female one and the same, then you will enter the kingdom. You will enter this place of transformed consciousness. Now the Gospel of Thomas also points out, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. So if you don't get out the inner potential, that inner potential will turn toxic and kill you. So this is a clear image of the necessity to bring into the world as much as the, of the potential of the self as possible. There's a nice comment in Lao Tse that amplifies this as well. He says, he who knows the male and yet keeps to the female becomes like space containing the world. As space containing the world, he has the eternal power which leaves not, and he returns to the state of infancy. There again you hear the, the necessity for becoming both male and female in your consciousness, uh, and, and how that returns you to a state of infancy. Well, I'll talk about that a little bit more. So here we have an image of a miniature model of the individuation process, completed, and also a mandala of aging, I think. So this is the answer to that criticism. This is how we imbue age with considerable significance. Now what I want to do is go through the individual themes in the dream. First of all, the image of androgyny, the masculine and feminine godhead. God, the godhead here is half male and half female, or both really. Of course, uh, this is an image of what Jung calls the coincidentia appositorum. The, uh, the opposites unite often imaged uh, as a union of heaven and earth, of king and queen and masculine and feminine, but the opposites come together without any conflict. In alchemy, of course, the, the great work consisted in the production of the perfect androgyne and was often symbolized by male-female figures, the two-faced head of the king and queen, or the red man and his white wife. And you notice that the head of the man has a red tinge to it. So the alchemical opus, uh, according to Jung, is a projection of the individuation process, and producing the philosopher's stone represents, in fact, the realization of the self or all the opposites united. Now, Eliade says that hermaphroditism is an archaic form of divine biunity. In other words, 
if you look in mythology, in the mythology, particularly the creation mythology of many cultures, the initial uh, divinity is bisexual. Uh, there are lots of images of that in mythology and religion and, and shamans. Uh, uh, there's an um, image of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, in Cyprus wearing a beard. Uh, in Persian mythology, the god of time is androgynous. Uh, there are uh, pictures of African and, and, and Egyptian gods that are bisexual. Zeus and is often dressed as a woman. Uh, the Chinese god of night and day is androgynous. And the Kabbalah, the divinity, has male and female aspects. And of course, the Tai Chi symbol from Taoism uh, also expresses the same idea. In Hindu mythology, um, uh, Shakta, uh, Shakti and Shiva are depicted as half male and half female, and so on. Christ in the Christian tradition is also imaged as an androgyne. Astrologically, we find the idea in Gemini, the twins. And in Plato's Symposium, he writes that man was initially created in the form of a sphere, two bodies and two sexes. Now, importantly, the hermaphrodite and the androgyne are not the same. In the vision seminars, Jung writes that the hermaphrodite precedes individuation. Okay, So this is an androgyne, not a hermaphrodite. Now, what's the difference? According to Charles Ponce, the hermaphrodite is an image of masculinity and femininity joined in a sexual body. But the androgynous state is an image of the archetypal realm in the subtle body with differentiated consciousness. In other words, conscious bisexuality. The hermaphrodite is unconscious with an emphasis on genital sexuality. The archetypal uh, is an image of differentiated consciousness. So the hermaphrodite would be the image of the unconscious union of op opposites that you start with. The fetus, the human fetus, of course, the baby, eventually has masculine and feminine aspects to it, but it's undifferentiated and unconscious. And here in late life is the achievement of androgyny, where that process occurs. Instead of being physically and sexual, it occurs in consciousness. You see the difference of the differentiation and the awareness. Okay. Um, Hillman also points out, uh, by the way, when he's talking about Dionysus, that he was a bisexual god, and one of his main representations was as a child. So his idea of the, in the uh, myth of analysis of the ultimate goal of psychotherapy is the wholeness of consciousness undivided into spirit and matter. Now, Edinger points out, interestingly, that consciousness etymologically means the same as conjunctio. Conjunctio, of course, in Latin means joining, joining together. But uh, consciousness means con scary, knowing with. So uh, knowing would be the logos aspect, the thinking aspect, and the with implies withness or relationship or eros. So consciousness is in fact an image of conjunctio, of joining together, uh, of uniting, uh, of, of, of um, logos and eros or masculinity and femininity. So the, it seems that when you unite uh, logos and eros, the male and the female, that's how you make consciousness, which is what you have to do in late life. Edinger talks about consciousness as it was a kind of fluid that you make. I'm not sure what it really is, uh, but, I, but that's how it's made. Um, <laughs> it isn't made by the brain, that's for sure. Uh, there are, unfortunately, people who think that just as the kidney secretes urine, so the brain secretes consciousness. That is a, a gross, gross misunderstanding. Okay? Um, if anything, the brain just acts as a television set to uh, kind of make the image uh, clear, but the mind is all around us. It's not made by the brain. That's a very silly idea. Uh, also, I found in, in Stan Groff's work uh, the experience of androgynous consciousness during LSD trips, particularly when they were people were re-experiencing their original birth. Very interesting. 
because what LSD does, of course, is simply amplify what's in the psyche. It doesn't make something new happen. It ampl these drugs are amplifiers of mental processes. So that would be more evidence that this androgynous type of consciousness, where male and female are united and joined uh, in an unconflictual way, exists as a potential in the human unconscious. In Groff's words, it's part of the map of the unconscious. It belongs there. So apparently, this archetypal potential was activated in, in our dreamer when it was necessary for her in order to help her further her development. It, it's like the self is saying, look, this is what you have to do next. I see the square. Now the square is, a, is an expression of quaternity, firmness, stability, honesty, integrity. Okay, I'll be uh, square with me. Okay, uh, he's a square. And an image of organization and construction. Okay, it's like a brick. It refers to matter, earth, and rationality. It's an old image of the order and stability of the world. It has there are four elements, four seasons, four stages of life, the four corners of the earth. So it's an image of God manifesting in matter, in creation. Uh, it may also represent, I think, death fixed as opposed to the dynamic circle of life and movement. But because the square has limits, it represents form and permanence and stability. Now, the circle is often an image of the sun, of heaven and perfection, and of the self in its more impersonal aspects. Uh, it responds to an ultimate. It corresponds to an ultimate state of oneness, whereas the square, I think, more represents the plurality of man without any inner unity. And the Tai Chi, of course, says that there's always something of the masculine and the feminine, and something of the feminine and the masculine, and so on. Now, um, the circle is also an image of time in the sense of cyclicity, recurrence, birth and death, infinity, eternity. Also of time, because it has no beginning and no end. Time enclosing space. Uh, timelessness, no beginning and no end, and also of spacelessness, since it has no above or below. So you see why circles and squares were ancient images of divinity. Now as the sun, the circle uh, was masculine, but as the soul, it was feminine and maternal. So the circle, in fact, can be both sometimes, depending on the context. Now the dream picture also has a sun-moon image. You see that uh, crescent at the bottom is a moon, and of course the uh, uh, Oh, lost my thread. Oh yes, that was what I was going. Um, whenever uh, Jung says that whenever an unconscious content becomes conscious, this is the equivalent of a conjunctio solis et lunae, uh, an equivalent of a sun-moon uh, conjunction. So this is constantly, in many many different ways, imaging the coming together of these different aspects of consciousness, emphasizing the masculine and the feminine, the eternal and the temporal, the spiritual and the physical, in all these different images. Now, squaring the circle, which is what happens here, the circle is squared, is an alchemical preoccupation about the relationship between the circle, which is the cosmic symbol of heaven, and the earth, imaged as a square. So it's an image of how do you unite the opposites into a higher synthesis, where the opposites don't opposite anymore, where they now synthetically somehow a unity. Their idea was to obtain unity of the spiritual life and the material world. For P Pythagoras, the square itself was an image of the soul, uh, in the hermetic tradition, the, the uh, alchemical tradition, that square with the circle in the middle was an image of the anima mundi, the soul of the world. So you have an image of the soul, of the soul of the person, and of the soul of the world. You see how many, many superimposed images uh, of apparent opposites joined together in an attempt at synthesis. Are, it's a, a profound mandala of the joining of all these opposites. Uh, Jung also write, wrote about this um, squared circle as being an image of salt in the alchemical literature. Uh, it's a double totality symbol, you see. The circle represents non-differentiated wholeness, and the square uh, 
discriminated wholeness. Now, salt uh, in alchemy was one meaning of salt was as soul used by the alchemist to mean soul, uh, to mean understanding and wisdom, if the, uh, and relationships. If the salt has lost its savor, and so on, so it uh, it means relationships, understanding, and soul. And Christ sometimes in the Christian tradition is spoken of as the salt of wisdom, that which makes wisdom, and so on. Now you see the triangle. There's an implicit triangle. It's missing on, on this side. But there's clearly an implicit triangle here. And you see there's a, there's a figure missing on the right side there, or the left side, depending on, on the man's left side. There's a missing figure. And guess who belongs there? Um, so the base of the triangle is between the, what should be the two human figures. Now, the triangle in alchemically was an image of man. It was an image of soul, body, and spirit. And the triangle in a circle is an image of forms held within the circle of eternity. Um, when it's pointing upwards in alchemy, it was an image of fire going up, an image of ascent, and the urge to get to, to get up from below. Now, uh, a circle within a triangle, within a square, if you can imagine that, is an image of the relationship, the triangle, between the square as earth and heaven as a circle, how those things are brought together. So that, I think, is reflected here as well. And the implied triangle, I think, is, uh, you see, if you finish the triangle, I think you'd put the dreamer's head down there and finish the triangle, and then you'd have an image of relationship between humanity the, at the bottom and divinity at the top. And that, of course, is what is called in Jungian psychology the ego-self-axis. I think that that's not a good term, and um, it uh, perhaps should be called, I think, the ego-self-analog because there's an analog of humanity and divinity implied here. Not, it's not simply an axis, it's more of an analog. But that's just my opinion, that's not official Jungian theory. <laughs> um, now, I want to talk a, a little bit, how much time have I got? Who's the timekeeper? Can I go on for another five or ten minutes? Five minutes? <laughs> You're getting bored, eh? <laughs> I haven't got to the child yet, John. Just wait. I'm going to get to the. Now I want to talk about the transformation of the self, or the transformation of God, and the creation of consciousness in late life. Now, uh, in the second part of life, you don't need to be as rigid about yourself as you do in the first part of life. In the first part of life, to build ego, to build reality in a place in the world, you have to develop preferentially, as I talked about. But you can let go some of that defensiveness and rigidity in late life, and you can widen your identity and your sense of who you are. And the more you do that, the more you discover your full potential, of course. Now, all your full potential was present when you were a baby. And what, you, what you're trying to do now is realize more of it in late life. You had to sacrifice it for the sake of adaptation and ego development. There's nothing wrong with that. Now, the child, to, to answer finally John Giannini's question, the child is often imaged by Jung uh, as a symbol of the self. Now, Jung also talks about the hermaphroditism of the child because the child is sexually undifferentiated. It's his equivalent of Freud's polymorphous perversity. So it's an image of pre-consciousness in early childhood. And, of course, what he calls the post-conscious essence of the child, by analogy, is an image of life after death. But anyway, the child is an image of, of psychic wholeness, but undifferentiated and relatively unconscious. Okay. Now, just as there's an inner child or archetype of the divine child, so I believe there's an archetype of aging or an inner elder. Okay. And just as the child can be imaged as hermaphroditic in, the, in that undifferentiated sense, or certainly the fetus can, 
So the old person can be imaged here ideally as androgynous, and that's one, one of the meanings of the phrase, God gets younger. As we get older, God gets younger. The self in late life finally got to the point. The self in late life becomes as androgynous as the self in childhood. Okay. The self in, in late life when it, uh, becomes as androgynous as the self of childhood. So the dream images God as an androgyne and invites, I think, the dreamer to develop likewise. Um, so if she takes her rightful place in this relationship, she'll complete the analogy of divine to human. Now, God gets younger also refers to the fact that the self in late life becomes more similar to the self in the primal self, the self in infancy, because that self in infancy contains all potentials but without the boundaries and the categories. What ego consciousness does is it makes categories, but they weren't there in infancy. So in both cases, in the self in infancy and the self in adulthood, uh, all those opposites and, and conflicts are all there, uh, but in late life, the self is incarnated. It's come into flesh. It's come into the world. It doesn't just exist as potential, and it's been transformed by human consciousness, by ego. So individuation means, on the one hand, incarnation, and on the other hand, differentiation. It means both. And uh, as the images come up from the unconscious throughout life, um, uh, as revelation, uh, that makes new consciousness possible, and new conscious and ego consciousness makes that process happen. So it's a, uh, the ego self relationship is circular. So the self births the ego in childhood. Uh, the ego somehow comes out of the self, but then in late life, the ego returns the complement, because then in late life, it's as if God makes man. In ch God makes the baby in childhood, but in, in late life it's reversed, because as ego consciousness develops, it, it helps more self to come into the world. I hope that's clear. Uh, now, the self in the baby, of course, is very old. It's the Jung's two-million-year-old man, but it's relatively unconscious as far as the baby's ego is concerned. So by realizing its potential, the developing ego allows the self to constantly get born, and this is what Meister Eckhart means by the birth of God. Uh, now, one of the major difficulties that we have is that the ego thinks that ego knows uh, how the individual ought to be. Because, and what, uh, the difficulty in old age is that the losses of old age and the physical changes of old age uh, change our identity and we get very upset. But we are not who we think we are. And it's very important for us to let go of our ego ideas of who we think we are and not have too fixed a self-concept, small s self-concept, because we need to discover more how the self thinks the ego ought to be. So the function of old age is the culmination of this lifelong process of clarification, what um, Floyd Scott Maxwell calls discovering your essence, and making conscious all the disparate parts of yourself with the aid of ego consciousness, or as Jung says, helping the creator to become conscious of his creation, or developing the ego into a model of the self, which it really is, or as he quotes Silesius, I am God's child and son and he is mine, and that's what that means psychologically. So the self that's present at birth can become more conscious of itself throughout life. And then psychological development and spiritual development are absolutely synonymous. Only the words are different, but the process is the same. Now what about suffering in late life? Well, as, ego, as Edinger points out, suffering at any age can be understood by the ego as the attempts of the self to incarnate. The way it feels to the ego when we're suffering uh, is uh, unpleasant, but it's often simply God trying to incarnate. It means this process trying to occur from below, so to speak. Because the ego doesn't know the intention of the self. If the ego knew the intention of the self, it wouldn't hurt so much. And Jung uh, writes about this. He says, as we extend our consciousness into the unconscious, we, ex we contact spheres of a not yet transformed God. So as the ego in later life 
brings this material up and thinks about it and articulates it, that helps to transform the self or helps to transform the as yet unconscious God or aspects of the self. I don't, I don't mean God literally here, I mean the way Jung meant it as an image of God in the psyche or the self. Okay. So the losses of old age, uh, which seem very painful, actually enhance our own differentiation. And we have to take, as Jane Wheelwright says, we have to take back our projections from the world. We, we project onto the world the way we think it is. When all those things die off, those projections have to be taken back, and we see things the way they really are. And we have to find what was lost on the outside, symbolically, on the inside. And that's the idea of finding the whole world in, in the microcosm. Or as the Gospel of St. Thomas also says, whoever finds himself is superior to the world. Okay, let's stop for a break. Um. Does anybody have a question? Yes, sir. The question is, what do I think about the demented old? I, w I was making the point that we should get rid of the idea that that sick old people and demented old people are somehow bad, and that only a healthy old age is good. That's the dualism that we have to get rid of. And we have to try to understand that the whole process is important. Um, now, the problem is, how do you imbue a demented old person with spiritual value? or moral significance or something like that. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I understand the difficulty that I haven't got to that point yet. Because uh, the, the, um, the demented old person can't have this kind of consciousness by definition. So he loses the capacity to do this. In a way, of course, he becomes like a child again. He needs... Uh, being taken around, helped with toilet, often diapered. Uh, he doesn't know anything. His intelligence falls. So I suppose you could see dementia as um, a sort of organic regression to childhood. But I don't think that quite does it somehow. I just want to, I don't know how to do it yet, but I want to get to a point where we can find some kind of uh, spiritual significance even in that, but I can't do it yet. Okay. Yes. The, the demented person has to be taken care of and that gives the another person an opportunity. But that's not much help to the demented person, or is it? Uh, being, um, in, be, uh, allowing somebody to take care of you might be important for their, for their development in some way. That's possible. Consciousness. That's the problem with dementia. There's no ego consciousness there. Yeah. That's a very good point. So that the demented person um, is, on, is behaving in a way that's going to help the consciousness of the culture, the wider culture. Yeah. Yeah. And those issues 
Oh, I see, I see. So that's a very good point. Now that, that point is that we're thinking of the demented person too personally, and we should think of it as a social issue, and the collective consciousness has to, do, has to deal with that. And that's a very good point. Maybe that's, what it ha maybe that's the meaning of it, that the demented person has to heighten the consciousness of the collective in some way. Well, I don't know. I, I'll think about that. Thank you. <laughs> yes. You suggested that the best preparation for a rich, older age is a rich childhood. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I wonder if that would generalize to all aspects of life, all periods of life, that living a yeah. possible life would be one. Or are there, in addition, things one can do as one approaches older age to more specifically work out that task? Yeah. The question is, apart from having a, a, a good childhood, what else can you do in, throughout life to help uh, old age to be fulfilled? And I think um, it's being as broad as possible in your own development in terms of creativity and uh, uh, interests and uh, social things and your development of your inner life, so that when you get into old age, you've got a lot of possibilities to draw on that you're aware of. Maybe some of them you're only dimly aware of but that um, it doesn't seem like there's nothing left for you. So, so that being interested in, in several things, or deeply interested in a few things, the main thing is not to get there and think there's nothing left for me to do, which some people do when they, they keep working. All they've done all their life is work, and, they, and then when they stop working, they get depressed because there's nothing left. So it's not doing that is very important. Not being one-sided. Organic brain syndrome does in late life is it, it uh, heightens uh, attributes of the personality, it emphasizes them. So what you're seeing probably is the way the person always, this is true of aging in general actually, that, that aspects of the personality become intensified. So probably the proclivity for that was always there, and now the uh, higher brain functions or ego controls have been removed, you're seeing uh, the erupting into behavior of stuff that they used to be able to keep the lid on. But because of the brain disease they can't. You mean, what's the um, mythic equivalent of dementia? Uh, well, I mean, there's stories of uh, Tiresias, of, not Tiresias, um, Tithonus, for example. Uh, actually, the Tiresias story is also important in this. Um, the Tiresias story is the story of uh, a man who was made blind. And uh, as, a, as a compensation for that, in late life, he, he was given the gift of prophecy which is an image of insight and foresight. So the image is that if you lose physical sight, you gain spiritual sight. And Tithonus was uh, um, a character who had a, um, an immortal lover who didn't want him to die. So she asked for him not to die, but she forgot to ask for eternal youth. So he just kept getting older and older. And um, in the end, he got older and older, more and more shriveled, and there are a couple of endings to the story. One is that he's in a room somewhere, uh, still begging to die. <laughs> and that would be an image antithetical to the, the opposite, to the, uh, tith, to the um, Tiresias story, which is an image of successful aging. The other one, end is that he was turned into a grasshopper. But, so one is an image of successful aging, and, and your demented person might be, the, might be, the equivalent might be Tithonus, where you just beg to die, but can't die. Yes. I was thinking 
relationship between understanding and forgiveness. The more you can understand, the more you're likely to forgive. And you, you understand children much better, so you forgive them much more readily. So maybe that's the key, that we don't understand the demented old person enough, and we, we don't forgive them, and that's why we get so angry with them. Yeah. There's a lot of pressure not to develop. Yeah, yeah, it's terrifying. The, the, there is a lot of pressure for old people to stay the same and not be different because it makes everybody uneasy around them. And if you've always seen your mother or father behave in a certain way and suddenly they take up motorcycling, it can make you frightened. Uh, there was a joke about that with this old lady on a, on a big powerful motorcycle tearing down the freeway with a young man uh, sitting on the seat, clutching her behind her, saying, but Grandma, what did the psychiatrist actually say? <laughs> but it does scare people, yeah. But you know, we have to make culture, you see, that's the point. There are all these terribly um, outdated ideas about young people, and it's this kind of uh, thinking about it and, and developing a new consciousness about it that will make uh, things different, spread the consciousness. The difficulty is that old people buy into the prejudices and they think they shouldn't change and they should be the same. And that's why it's difficult. I mean, I would imagine these ideas might be rather unpopular. You know, just as in uh, Freud's time, the idea of the derepression of sexuality was unpopular. So in our time, the idea of the derepression of spirituality is unpopular. Okay, um, and now you can talk, then you couldn't talk about sex at a, at a dinner party in Victorian times. Now it's difficult to talk about spirituality around a dinner party. Everybody gets uncomfortable. They think you're a bit odd. And um, so, and, and these ideas about aging um, make a lot of people uncomfortable. I'm surprised very few people have disagreed because uh, commonly people don't like these ideas. Well, it's, you know, if things change, you don't have the security of things being the same. Yeah, but that implies that they're doing it, that they're consciously making a choice to get dementia. I'm not sure that whether that's true or not. But I'm very interested that we're all talking about dementia. I mean, I've spent this whole time talking about spirituality and the, uh, the androgynous nature of God <laughs> and the union of the opposites. And, and now we've had a, an enantiodromia into, the, into dementia. It's very interesting that, isn't it? It's as, if, it's as if that up in the cloud stuff was too much and people wanted to talk about uh, more earthy stuff.
One more dementia question. Nobody wants to talk about the androgynous nature of God or androgynous consciousness. <laughs> This lady hasn't got it yet herself, but she, she thinks she's got it. Slurred speech is not an early symptom of Alzheimer's disease. She's got something else. Yeah. But I yeah. Um, but I understand. The point is that, but she's living in maybe she drinks too much. But but she's living in fear of. Um, of she's living in fear. She's living in the future, not in the present. So what was your question? What, what do you say? Yeah. Well, um, you can reassure her that, that most Alzheimer's disease is not, it's not hereditary. So there is, there is a hereditary ver um, type of Alzheimer's disease, but it, there isn't anything like a... Um, I mean, the, the chances are that she won't get it. You know, only 5% of people get it, and it's only slightly higher in the relatives of people with it. Okay, so that would be the, the matter of fact reassurance. Well, because you can't be conscious of your loss. You have to be. The question is um, that we were talking about the value of the importance of losses that when you get the dementia and you sort of lose the capacity to have higher consciousness, that's another form of loss. But you, you know, the important point about consciousness is to know that you're conscious, to be conscious of the fact that you're conscious. Yeah. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, you could certainly say, well, a demented person can't think the way we can, but that he has a different kind of consciousness that's not dependent on conceptual thought, but that he still has some quality of consciousness, and that we categorize that as bad, but that if we could have the proper perspective, it would just be a different kind of consciousness. I don't believe that we have to tell this person Yeah. But the whole point about what I'm saying is that the ego helps to give birth to the self, or you help to give birth to the image of God inside you. That's the whole point about this. Uh, I am God's son and he is mine. You know, um, as Eckhart says, God is constantly being born in us. So, but for that to happen, in other words, the potentials of the self have to constantly be realized and incarnated. But it needs ego consciousness. God needs man and all that, those ideas. Well, you, you, yeah, but you can't do that if you don't have consciousness. That's the problem with dementia. So I see your point that maybe we maybe we're just looking at it from a point of view that um, uh, is a wrong point of view. But I don't know. I'm sorry. I'll have to think about that some more. I think people. Have, this discussion of dementia has made me slightly uncomfortable because it's the one aspect of aging I really uh, have paid very little attention to, and now I'm, I've realised why I haven't. <laughs> so it's heightened my uh, it's heightened my um, 
consciousness about this problem. <laughs> Well, the, the dreamer, you see, the dreamer belongs in the missing... You see, the, this is a picture of the androgynous godhead. And here's a, a male. She's a female. So this is a human male. So the human female belongs in this corner, making up the triangle. And that's the. And that was what I talked about. That's the... Well, because she has a choice. Because, you see, the un what the unconscious does is it suggests a symbol to you, but it gives you a choice. It, can't, it doesn't make you do it. Now, I think, I mean, it doesn't make you do it consciously. If you don't do it, it'll happen to you. But it's better to make the choice consciously. It's like saying individuation can happen unconsciously. But she has the choice of doing it consciously, but she has to choose to do it and do it consciously. Okay. So it's saying that in old age, that the self, capital S, self-development includes the development of androgynous consciousness, of the, of the uniting of the opposites, of having masculine, feminine, you know, all that. But that she has to achieve that herself. She has to put herself there, i.e. achieve it. Yeah, well, the dream is a dream of aging. So, well, if it was an old woman, it wouldn't be an exact analogue, because she's the missing woman. She's the missing human. That's the point. It's got to be an analogue to the, to the image of the androgynous godhead, which in the dream is said to be partly male and partly female. So it's like the male aspect is given, and she has to put herself in that other place. But I, I thought what would be interesting to discuss was what is the nature of androgynous consciousness? What does that mean? Nobody wants to talk about that? I, I'm not going <laughs> to... Well, I think we should ask some of the... Some of perhaps... Uh, I, I, it means all kinds of things, but... Um, would you like to say what that means for you personally? experience of the self. Yeah, which is a, a form of what Jung calls legitimate suffering. Mm -hmm. And uh, the problem is if we deny that, then of course we have what uh, he would so implicitly call illegitimate suffering. Neurosis. Um, and I think there's a way of, of speaking that, about that ultimately uh, in terms of androgyny or in terms of what I would call the synchronistic uh, dimension of androgyny, which is the balance. 
That's an incredible dream. It's an incredible dream. And, yeah. and I associated that with uh, the last few These stars represent the archetypal realm, you see. And when she gets full of the star, then she dies. That would be, yeah, that would be an image of the fact that the ego comes out of that realm, and then at death, the ego builds back into that realm, which is probably what happens in some way anyway. So, it's, so that's, um, that's remarkable. And we're all hanging from our own star. <laughs> but that's a remarkable dream. Um, well, you know, the problem of understanding androgynous consciousness has to do with the problem of knowing the nature of masculinity and the nature of femininity. What, what, does that, what do those principles mean? I mean, there are traditional stereotypes of Logos and Eros, masculinity meaning, meaning uh, penetrating, decisive, assertive, uh, knowing what you want and going out and getting it, consciousness. And femininity meaning receptive, nurturing, uh, enclosing, all that, more static. You know those images. Maybe those are correct, and maybe when you, when you, if you can really synthesize those so that they don't conflict with each other, that you get some um, some state of consciousness that encloses both of those in a way where they don't conflict. Maybe that's what it means. Is that that might be relevant to you because it might be saying integrate this more, integrate this other side more. I don't know whether those are correct images of masculinity and femininity or not. But the fact that, the, that this image is in all these creation myths is very remarkable. Uh -huh. yeah, question. <laughs> oh, yeah, the voice says, as we get older, God gets younger. And when we, are, when we die, God is reborn. Now, one aspect of that is saying uh, death isn't the end, that you should see your own life in relation to eternity. Another aspect of it is that as we get older, that, the, that we get more like the child, except that unlike the child, we are differentiated and conscious. When we're a baby, um, but we are like the child in that all those original potentials that existed as potential in the baby now exist fully in the world incarnated. 
but it's the same it's the same as the child because it's all that is there again and not in a one-sided way the way it was in midlife so we are in late life the same as we were in childhood except developed and incarnated and fully differentiated and fully consciousness fully conscious and also that we are helping that process so God is constantly getting born that means that that when we realize a, a bit about the self from an image and we realize we expand our own consciousness we get more like the self because Jung says that the ego is a model of the self and if we just knew everything that was in the self if the ego just knew everything was like it would be a perfect model of the self then man would be a perfect model of God that's what it means to say that we are created in the image of God it means that the ego is a perfect analogue for the self or man is a perfect analogue for God and yet man is not God there's some paradox in there but but it's referring to the fact that we could get more and more like God who was there at present who was present at birth in the baby as a potential self okay and now it becomes all that realized in the world but it's the same you get the point that's how the yeah oh sure that's where we stop Commentary today is by Peter DeMuth, PsyD, Jungian analyst in private practice in Evanston, Illinois. More information about Dr. DeMuth can be found at demuthpsychologicalservices.com. Hi, this is Dr. Peter DeMuth from the Chicago Society of Jungian Analysts, and I just uh, listened to the fourth segment of Lionel Corbett's uh, lecture on archetypal and pre-egoic defenses. Um, what really kind of like uh, got my interest was the fact that a lot of the material discussed in this lecture seemed to predate Donald Kalshed's work on the self-care system. And uh, for those of you who are not familiar with that, I heartily recommend Donald Kalshed's book, The Inner World of Trauma. And I think that will kind of like um, illuminate and give you some more ideas about this. Uh, one of the things that kind of gets me really interested in the pre-egoic defenses is the fact that I have a uh, adopted son from Guatemala, uh, which my wife and I adopted at age nine months. And one of the things I was wondering about is what were his early experiences before he came to our place or came to our home in America? What were his experiences? Were they good? Were they nurturing? And how would they play out in his life? especially since they had happened before he had the power to describe his life in language. They were, in other words, they happened before he had the ability to talk. So I was really interested in this um, conversation because it, it gave me some new ideas about how to think about that. Also, I had recently attended a workshop on integrative hypnosis, and... Um, what they talked about was really interesting as well because they talked about how to access different levels of the soma. And of course the soma has a different language unto itself other than the language of the ego. But there are certain words and certain ways that you can talk to the psyche where that language can actually communicate to places in the soma such as the hippocampus, the hypothalamus, or the amygdala. And using certain words and certain phrases you can kind of actually communicate directly with those places in the body that aren't really regulated by the ego. But I found that very interesting and probably also connected to this lecture. Finally, um, at the end, Corbett was talking about this case 
where a little girl was sent to call her father for dinner and she came back and told her mother that she wasn't able to call the father and eventually after the mother sending the daughter three times she went with the daughter to find out why the daughter couldn't bring the father and they come to find out that the father has is slumped in a chair and he's had a heart attack and so the reason the girl couldn't go into the room is it was blocked by this angel which Corbett referred to as the guardian angel so the guardian angel was an archetypal defense that came up out of the psyche sent by the self and disallowed the entrance of the girl into the room because she would not be able to uh, handle the trauma and so until the mother came with her and the mother would be there to help her deal with the trauma the angel wouldn't let her in there are two other stories about the same kind of phenomenon is the first one is the story of the little match girl and in it you know she's trying to stay warm and she's trying she's starving and she's cold and she has this image of her grandmother who invites her into this place in the psyche uh, that's warm and protective but in so going there she ends up freezing to death but this was the archetypal defense or the angel inviting her there in order for her not to experiencing more trauma such as being beaten by her father or more you know frozen frostbite or whatever it was so that's an example of the archetypal angel that results in death there's another example uh, that takes place in the movie gravity where uh, Sandra Bullock's partner George Clooney he dies and he drifts off into space and during a moment of depression and uh, hopelessness Sandra Bullock decides that she's going to die too so she turns off all the life support systems in the airplane or the aircraft but then George Clooney comes back to her via her psyche he comes out from her own archetypal place and wakes her up out of her stupor and then uh, motivates her to save herself so there are two more examples of the what Corbett was talking about with the uh, the guardian angel anyway found the lecture to be fascinating make sure you uh, review uh, Donald Cowshed's book The Inner World of Trauma if you haven't and if you get a chance read Han Christian Sanderson The Little Match Girl and also see the movie Gravity thank you thanks for listening the content of today's lecture is copyright of Lionel Corbett if you are interested in hearing more lectures by Lionel Corbett please visit our audio downloads page at audio.youngchicago.org. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you are interested in attending seminars taught by Jungian analysts, our five-part series, Transformative Encounters, Meeting the Other in Inner and Outer Life, begins September 26th. For more information about this and our other courses, visit our website, www.youngchicago.org. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. I'm Ben Law, the editor of the podcast, and I'll see you next time.